Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm pleased to be speaking to Catherine Alfrey. Catherine is a founder and portfolio manager of Wavestone Capital, an Australian-based equity manager with approximately five and a half million under management and a solid track record at 11% compound annual growth since inception. We talked to Catherine about her background and her style of investing and how she thinks about companies and the valuation of them and when to invest and when to sell. We also talked to Catherine about some of the challenges facing females in the wealth management, investment management area as one of the few leaders in this area. I think Catherine's very well positioned to talk about that. We also talk about Catherine's outlook for the current market working through record highs. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed nor is it specific advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and seek their own advice before making any investments. Please enjoy the podcast. Remember to send me your feedback and suggestions. I enjoy receiving those. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks and enjoy listening. Catherine Alfrey, welcome to Inside the Road. Thanks very much, David, for having me. Catherine, perhaps you could kick off by giving our listeners some insight into who you are and what your background is. My name is Catherine Alfrey. I'm a co-founder of Wavestone Capital. I'm a portfolio manager here at Wavestone Capital. We have a team of seven investment professionals um, that we manage both long and long short money in the Australian equity market only. Uh, we manage five and a half billion for super funds um, and retail clients. And what's the path that's led you to that, Catherine? Well, I come from a family of five, eldest child, um, and my father was in small business. Uh, and so I grew up on a diet of um, being around business and talking business. And my grandfather was a diplomat for Australia. And so the combination of a lot of politics at the t- dinner table, a lot of you know, business conversation, I actually thought that that was normal until I actually went, started going and visiting my friend's house, house houses for um, dinner and found out that, that it wasn't normal. Um, but I actually really enjoyed that conversation. So when I was looking at high school in terms of what I wanted to do, I did economics at um, school and I really loved that. Uh, and then I went and did some work experience at school at a stockbroking firm. And I love that because that was, you know, researching companies was exciting. And there was in the old days where it was like a scork box where the news would come out and all the different stocks and, you know, it was all live and it was live cry pricing and things in the um, 80s. Um, so it was great. Uh, and so I thought, right, this is what I'm going to do. So I went to university and did economics. I did a major in Japanese um, because I was in Queensland University. And so that's what one did in the late 80s uh, because you could, um, you know, make the most of your um, language skills um, using your Japanese. Uh, so after university, I actually went to Japan for a year, uh, six months, sorry, uh, and came back and it was the middle of the recession, the, the last great recession Australia had, and I had to get a job. And thankfully, because I could speak some Japanese, I got a job at a Japanese bank. Um, quickly learned out, learned that, um, you know, quite racist, unfortunately, and sexist uh, environment to work in. 
but I learned a lot over those couple of years working for the Japanese bank. But I worked out, and that was my first taste of um, corporates and corporate Australia, um, because we were big lenders to uh, corporate Australia. So I spent a lot of time with treasurers and CFOs and CEOs as quite a young person and really enjoyed that. And I thought, right, um, you know, I wanted to travel some more. So I went and travelled around Europe um, and then came back to Australia and was lucky enough to get an equity analyst trainee role with what became UBS. It was SBC Australia at the time. Um, and I worked with some really interesting people there um, from Russell Abood to Owen Evans to Shane Finnamore, um, Mark Steinert, some really interesting people that have become obviously uh, characters in the finance industry in Australia. Uh, so that was really in interesting. Went through a merger with Potter Warburg, um, survived that, kept going on the research sales. And so what was interesting, I guess, at that time was right at the time we had compulsory superannuation coming through in the 90s. And so there were a lot of new fund managers starting, a lot of international fund managers coming to Australia, um, and they're all looking to manage money. Um, and I increasingly was, you know, getting on very well with a lot of different fund managers around town. And I thought to myself, right, I really do want to have a go at actually managing money as opposed to just recommending stocks all day. And so I jumped ship and went into funds management. Um, and that was probably my biggest career mistake, if I'm honest with myself, um, because I joined an outfit called Prudential. And they were a growth manager, which was more my style of investing, right? I, li I like that. So that was like tick, yep. Six months into the role, they had a global decree out of London that they were now becoming a deep value manager from being a growth manager. And that was really, really difficult, um, a difficult change uh, for me personally. But someone gave me a really good piece of advice and they just said, look, put your head down, keep working. Someone will tap you on the shoulder and, you know, you'll get another job. So I was actually lucky enough to meet a guy called Greg Perry, who'd started a funds management firm with Chris Cuff called First State. Um, and I actually happened to meet him at a West Farmers dinner one night and had a great chat to him about politics and stocks and, you know, global economics and everything. And um, I got a tap on the shoulder a couple of months later saying, do you want to come and be an analyst for me? So I joined the First State team. Um, which became Colonial First State and um, clearly, you know, a lot of acquisitions and things, but that became, it, you know, is and was a very successful fund manager. Um, so I did that for just over six years um, and then uh, left there, uh, worked briefly with Greg when he started a small hedge fund called QED Capital and then went and had some children um, but meanwhile, started at Waystone when uh, Waystone Capital co-founded that with Ian Harding and Graham Burke in 2006. So that's really my journey um, in terms of career. Terrific. That's really uh, helpful, I think, for our listeners and also lays the path for some of our conversation about how you approach investment and, and the way you think about things. Um, mm. Why did you start Wavestone? Well, firstly, who is Wavestone and why did you start it and why is it different to others? Um, so we started Wavestone in 2006 because um, we'd been at Colonial First State. We'd seen it, you know, rise from uh, a small amount of money to, I think at the peak it was 24 billion. It was like, you know, investing the Titanic. Uh, so we did learn that, you know, my, a lot of funds under management does have an impact um, on performance uh, at, during that time because it was very difficult to move towards the end. 
And we really just wanted to get back into that boutique style. Uh, and so Graham Inn and I had worked together at um, Colonial First State and we decided to do a long, short product to start with um, to try something different in terms of investing. Um, but that was two, 2006 we started. And of course, along came the GFC, uh, which we managed to you know, manage well through that period. But even coming out of the GFC, it was very difficult to sell um, long, short products uh, during that time. I mean, there was a ban on shorting, et cetera. So we started Wavestone Capital because we wanted to obviously be our own bosses, have a boutique, um, you know, focus on um, our clients' needs. And we had our own money to invest as well. So we wanted to invest, co-invest with our clients. Um, and so we... Uh, started long short like I said and then we did have one long only product um, that started in 2007 it was just a mandate product in the background and then in 2014 we launched a retail product in long only um, post the GFC and then we also went into uh, investing first with super funds for super funds from that time and as you, um, as you stand today it's four strategies isn't about 5.3 billion under management is that correct? Yeah, just a bit more. Yeah, five and a half bill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and what's the split of between those strategies? Where does most of the money lie? So a billion dollars in retail, um, of which about 300, 320 is in long short, and then the rest is in long only. And then the rest is super fun money. And, and what are the characteristics um, you know, I read in some of the material that you're kind enough to send over, you talked about high conviction, tax aware, bottom up, fundamental stock picking, um, quality GARP, uh, growth mm. at a reasonable price. Can you explain mm. that to our listeners, our positioning and your positioning and how that has come about and how that would be beneficial to an investor? Okay, well, our sort of underlying philosophy is that share prices are driven by growth in companies' earnings. Um, so we are focused on the three to five year outlook for a company. Where we see that we can add value um, is on that longer term duration um, type investing. So we are reasonably low turnover as well, like around 20% turnover um, for our funds because we are tax aware. So we are very aware of the fact of, you know, when a company is going ex-dividend, we are aware of the fact of our 12 month holding period on stocks with CGT. Um, so we'd like to invest, like we would want, want to invest in terms of looking over the horizon. So I think increasingly in this industry, because there's so many quant funds and ETF, you know, type funds, event funds, et cetera, they're very good at predicting, you know, the earnings in the next um, earnings reporting season, but they're not particularly good at working out where it's going to go in a long-term view. So that's where we add our value. And so how we go about it is we're looking for quality companies at a reasonable price, right? So we're not going to pay any price for a company, um, but we are going to look at mispricing opportunities of those quality companies when that comes around. Um, a good recent example is ResMed, mm -hmm. um, really high growth Australian company, sells sleep apnea products globally. It's a huge Aussie success story, right? They came out with their last result. I mean, they've released another result today, but they came out with their last result and the market didn't like it predominantly because they'd been able to sell some ventilators during COVID period in 2020, which had boosted their sales. And then there'd been this, you know, obviously reset down during the quarter as it was comping that high 
higher sales period. Anyway, the market sold it off um, down to $25. And we said, you know, no, look, you know, this is actually on a five-year view, this company um, is at an inflection point and we should, you know, continue to buy more stock in terms of resmit. Well, lo and behold, their major competitor, Philips, had a global recall and the stock, of course, in the last few months has put on about 40%. So it's sort of looking for those mispriced opportunities amongst those quality companies. And how we define quality is we look for companies that we look at, firstly, we spend a lot of time with boards and management teams, understanding their strategies and understanding what makes them, what makes them tick, like, you know, what gives them that superior corporate DNA. What is the customer engagement like? What is the engagement like with their staff? What is what are they doing with our money? Like we're a fiduciary responsibility for our clients' money. And then on behalf of them, what are you doing with our money? Is our conversations that we have with management board teams when we're investigating and speaking with them. Because what we want to understand is, you know, that acquisition that you're intending to do in terms of does it make sense? Is it a sort of low risk acquisition, you know, consistent with strategy, or is it betting the farm? Because um, time and time again, Australian corporate history is littered with companies that have made the wrong strategic acquisition offshore, or, you know, even like Woolworths with Masters Joint Venture in Australia, they can still make really dumb capital allocation decisions. So we see that a lot of the time that that's, you know, turning points for stock prices. Um, so we spend a lot of time trying to work out, you know, what makes this company tick? Where, what is their um, capital allocation in terms of policy? And then once we've worked out in terms of the corporate, we then work out the industry in which it operates in. And we look for the tailwinds or headwinds that industry is facing. And if you look over the last you know, 20 years in Australia as well, different industries, they all go through different business cycles, right? And so it's really using the combination of the two. If we've got a superior corporate DNA company is what we call it and it's got industry tailwinds behind it that means the earnings over time are going to go faster than the market which means that company um, should share price you know should follow that earnings growth um, and we should have the makings of a really good investment. And Catherine can you think of any uh, instances or example over your history not necessarily at Wavestone maybe at Colonial or, or, or one of the organisations you've been in where you've been able to learn from an error or a mistake that may be yours or the teams where you now hold that in or it's part of the philosophy or way in which you invest that, all right, we won't do that again or I now know X, Y and Z. Can you think of any specific good learning experiences, if you'd like, that, that you could call out? Yeah, there's, I mean, gosh, you know, <laughs> the wonderful thing about this market is as soon as you think you've got a beat, it, you mm -hmm. know, it cuts you down to size and you've got to you know, be humble again. Um, so there's plenty of examples over time and, you know, we're littered with um, different ones. Um, what I would say is um, I hate, for example, when companies just raise money uh, for balance sheet improvement. You know, that to me is a sure sign that, you know the share price is at a top uh, so debt reduction that's just like ah. um so you see that time and time again um directors selling that's another big one um in terms of 
you know, you see the director selling and then, oh, lo and behold, six months later, just, oh, we didn't know this was going to happen. You know, the yep. things come out of thin air. Um, and so, you know, over time, the other thing is just don't be afraid to take profits as well in terms of your stocks uh, as well. Just you, you do want to let them run. But at the same time, if there's a change in the CEO at that company, um, if there's um, a change in, uh, you know, turnover amongst the next level of management down, um, a change at the board level, you just sort of got to watch all these little signals all the time for whether or not you should continue to hold in terms of that sell signal for that company. Um, they're just some of the things I'd come out with. And Catherine, how, how important do you think it is for a fund manager or for investors to ensure they understand the mandate that the manager has? How important do you think the mandate is in determining the overall success and, and what should be some of the things that investors look for in that area? Well, you want, you want to invest with someone that you understand um, what they're doing. Uh, and so the same is, you know, in terms of us when we invest with companies. We don't understand the company, uh, what it does or strategic direction it's taking or we, we don't invest in it. Uh, and so I think it's really important for the underlying investor to not have any surprises um, and understand that, um, you know, the actual philosophy and process of a company, uh, sorry, a fund manager's investment style. And then you don't get the surprises over the longer term. Catherine, unfortunately, you're one of few females featuring on this podcast that should build as the leading minds in wealth management. I, I would love to, for it to be far more uh, diverse and representative of our society. Um, so would I. <laughs> you, you alluded to in your career earlier on having experienced both sexism and racism. Um, mm. Why is it, in your view, we have so few leaders in the wealth management, funds management, investment management industry and or how will that or can we correct that in the future? So I'm, I'm working with an organisation called Future Impact, which is trying to work with female graduates around Australia who were, you know, are studying finance, uh, economics, um, because 50% of graduates are female and they're coming into the entry levels uh, and they're just not getting to the top um, is the concern. Uh, I mean, I love, I say to it because I also, I'm now working like a mentoring at uh, the university here in Sydney. Um, you know, I do help up my old university as well, um, their economics and commerce department as well. But um, it's been really, really hard uh, to get women through. There are, you know, increasingly a number of women at the top, like, you know, Kate Howard, um, from Fidelity and um, Yarra Capitals, you know, Kate as well. Um, so there, there are people coming through or girl, sure. women coming through, which is good. And I think um, we've had Cathy Wood of ARC on the yeah. podcast twice yeah. and on a global scene, she's, she, she's kicked some goals recently. Yeah, exactly. Um, but why does it not happen? Uh, I'm, you know, I, I do question as to why. Um, you know, a lot of the sort of portfolio managers at the top, uh, it's very trading, you know, driven, it's high testosterone, uh, that type of environment. Our firm's not like that. Um, 
so we're you know very diverse team you know I've got obviously another woman that works with me and then we've you know uh Raz is my business partner and um at Wavestone Capital Raz Buran uh he's from India you know we've got another guy on our team he's Indonesian so we try to have like you know a very diverse team um and it's purposely built that way um but I can't I, you know I I really shake my head I get really uh, upset about it and there are a lot of female analysts but they just haven't got to the next level in terms of portfolio management or and or running their own firm well let's hope we can discover ways to ensure that they do get to the tops going forward mm. um Catherine can I back to the the portfolio um what what is your current outlook going forward and, and I guess what what are you most concerned about if anything well, we've had such a fantastic run, right? The market's up uh, 30% in the last 12 months. You know, the index is 7,500. Um, most strategists seem to be saying that, you know, that's it in terms of where we are for the market. And what we have seen in the last six months is multiples contract and earnings growth, the earnings revision cycle has been very positive. Um, and that's been predominantly driven by the cyclicals by resource companies with the iron ore price being so strong, but also the banks have been upgraded because the bad debts haven't been um, as bad. Mm -hmm. But we are now at this really interesting inflection point because also the you know 10-year bond is down at 1.18. Um, and so along comes the Delta variant, and you know, 15 million Australians are in some form of lockdown as we speak. And you know, what is the ongoing impact. Now, what we all learned last year was that the governments around the world, because this is first and foremost a health crisis, um, are happy to write checks. And so I still think the market continues to believe that both um, the Reserve Bank and the Australian government has, you know, the consumers back and will continue to support them through these lockdowns and through this difficult period. And like I said, when, you know, we look at um, the sort of longer term, the like three to five year outlook and that's what I think the market is doing they're sort of saying hopefully through vaccination we can get through this in the next six months and this is a short-term problem and then over the longer term you know there's more sort of positives coming through um, it's really hard to think that way um, when we're all sitting here now that's not to say that in the next you know three months if we get another variant uh, globally if there's, you know, vaccine resistancy or, for example, we've already seen slowing growth in China. Um, you know, the Chinese are dealing with an outbreak now. If there is a global growth slowdown because of um, the Delta variant, then, you know, clearly stock markets will react to the slowing growth rate. Um, so things are looking pretty full across the valuation, uh, across valuations. Um, but this positive earnings and then the other part I would also talk about is um, capital allocation. I think this whole sort of ESG focus and the fact that, you know, people like Wavestone uh, spend a lot of time with, time with boards and management teams. We continue to reiterate about capital allocation policies. I think a lot of there's been big change out there amongst corporate Australia. So if you look at the resources sector, you know, whereas you look at the last time iron ore was at peak prices, they were making silly acquisitions offshore and um, increasing the capex and increasing supply of iron ore. And that caused obviously the collapse of um, 
the iron ore price. And it, you know, it was terrible. Whereas this time around, they're increasing their payout ratios, paying special dividends, they're buying back their stock, you know, they're doing all the right things this time. Um, same with the banks. You know, we've seen ANZ and NAB announce a buyback. Um, CBA is going to probably come out with one with their result, you know, shortly. Um, and so this much better um, management of capital by corporate Australia is actually is good for stock markets. And with regard to the technology companies, I think uh, you've done some work on the afterpays, Altium, Appen, NextDC, WiseTech, Zero, etc. How, how do you view those companies, which I want to say I saw in your analysis that they're trading on between 30 and 50 times last year's price earnings and then NA against uh, a half of those almost uh, because they're not producing earnings. How mm. do you view the outlook for those type of companies and or view potentially investing in them? So the first thing, and it's actually what uh, hurt us last year, um, I mean, obviously we've outperformed the market over one year rolling but and, and three, three years and five years, but we did have a tough time um, coming out of the recovery of COVID. Um, and one of the problems for us is that we've when, always when say, stuck when, by... When you say a tough time, I think it's worth pointing out to the listener, the, the returns were very, very good, but just versus the index, they were a little bit behind because technology took off. Correct. And we don't invest in unprofitable technology companies. Okay. So a company has to be um, turning a profit in the next 12 months um, mm. for us to invest in it. Um, and that has kept us out of trouble for a long, long period of time. And even in the last 12 months, you know, um, we've spent a lot of time looking at like new IPO. We didn't take that. Um, and then with the other, you know, tech companies such as uh, NextDC, Afterpay, Zip, you know, these are all unprofitable companies. We didn't, we just didn't own them. The only one we've owned is Zero, which we bought up, bought um, during the tech sell, you know, the COVID sell-off. Sorry, in um, March, April last year. Uh, and so where do we see them? Look, the best two businesses that we see currently are Zero and WiseTech um, amongst all of those players. We actually had a view, I mean, uh, Afterpay in the Square, bid for Afterpay, buy now, pay later sector. You know, for us, they just have been a huge beneficiary of all the fiscal stimulus we've seen, all the government payments. Um, these guys have really you know cleaned up on in the last 12 months and we actually thought that that sector was going to get much harder in the next you know on taking a three to five year view it was going to get much harder for them um, because we would resume a normal bad debt cycle for consumers um, and so that would result in you know a bit more of a margin squeeze we could also see a massive amount of entrance coming into the space we always admired afterpay but because it was loss making we never bought it um, mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, from that perspective, we just say oh, there's very competitive space and under some margin pressure. And I think if I read your documents correctly, you've, you've sold off Atlas Arteria. Can you perhaps explain to our listeners, you know, who Atlas is, what their business is and, and, and why you've sold it? Yeah, okay. Um, Atlas Arteria is um, a French toll road company. Um, and it was, came out of the Macquarie stable. And the reason we've sold it is because, again, we take um, valuation very seriously. 
And this company has only 14 years left in terms of the concession life of its toll roads. Um, and so it's very different to something like a Sydney airport, which when we sold Atlas, um, we increased our stake in Sydney airport and it was good timing because the takeover bids obviously come through in July. Um, but the Sydney airport has like a 90 year plus concession left to go. So you can't value these toll roads like normal industrial companies. You've got to look at the length of the concession that's left um, when you value them. And we have a very good infrastructure analyst in Kirsty Mackay-Fisher who, you know, to the, to the decimal point can tell us exactly, you know, what, what that uh, valuation should be based on the traffic growth and, you know, the tolls, et cetera. Um, and so for, from our point of view, it just was trading um, above its fair value. Terrific. Um, Catherine, what advice would you have for the average wholesale client managing a portfolio having perhaps had a large liquidity event in their past? Given your experience and the sort of mistakes you see, you know, investors off the street make, what sort of advice would you have for them? Um, that's a good, really good question. Uh, on no notice. <laughs> but what I would say is um, uh, in terms of investing in the Australian stock market, um, I, I mean, I think this our style of investing in terms of quality growth is the right way to go. Um, I think you've got to be really wary of just investing in, you know, Australian only businesses. Um, but Australia is a leader in a number of different areas. And there's been a number of global champions companies, you know, CSL, James Hardy, Aristocrat, uh, ResMed, um, you can even invest in Zero. you know, uh, wise tech there's just a number of champions where those management boards have been able to you know find very profitable niche businesses that they can take globally um, and so there's plenty of opportunity and you've just got to work out which of those you know companies that you're going to back um, and so avoid the sort of low growth you know AGL origin Telstra you know those type of companies um, and really focus on, you know, those businesses that have, you know, can grow their business offshore over the long term. Because going back to our philosophy, which is uh, the fact is that um, share prices are, uh, will reflect the growth in the company's earnings. Terrific. I think it's a wonderful place to uh, leave things. Um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, congratulations for what you've achieved in your career so far. It's fantastic. I will give you the last Right, if there's anything uh, uh, you would like to leave or last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners to, I'm happy for you to, to, to have it now. Thank you very much, David, for including me. I would say it's a team effort. Um, I'm very grateful to my business partner, Raz Buon, um, and my, also the staff that work for us in terms of our investment analysts and Nicholas Rosenberg's our dealer. You know, these guys work flat out um, for our investors. And, you know, it's, the, it's a real team effort at Wavestone. Terrific, Catherine. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate having you on Inside the Rope. Thanks very much, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes.
You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.